This is Coda Radio, episode 387, for November 10th, 2020. and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. A cloud guru now includes cloud playgrounds, Azure AWS, or Google Cloud Playground Sandboxes. <laughs> but they're on ACG's credit card, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining me like the stream watcher he is, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. How are you holding up, Chris? I'm all right. I will admit I have been tempted by the fruit of another today. Yes. I feel like I got shot in the back with an M1 Grand Classic rifle. See what I did there? It was rough, man, because uh, um, uh, there was a couple of surprises. So Mike and I just got done streaming Apple's Mac Arm event. It was actually a pretty tight little stream, uh, nice and quick, which is great. Gives us a little time to record a reaction for the folks out there. You know, and this is something we decided to do today because the tools of the trade are a big part of this show. So what we're going to do is we're going to hold some of our other topics on the feedback for next week's episode, and we're just going to get into it. So with that, I want to just start right now by thanking the people that make this show possible. So that way then for the rest of the show, we just dedicate it to the topic. So I'll start with Datadog. Datadog is a new sponsor on the Coda Radio program, and they're the monitoring analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. This is a great solution if you're across multiple providers, if you have on-premises and cloud or anything in between. You can see inside any stack, any app at any scale, anywhere. Datadog started in 2010 as developers who were having some some friction with system administrators, and they thought maybe there'd be a better way to do this. We've never heard that problem before. And that's what inspired them to create Datadog. And then what's really nice is just recently, uh, they rewrote their agent thing into Go, with Go. And so it's a super quick deploy, low resources, really simple, and you get so much insights. So go to datadog.com slash radio. You can unify your monitoring, you'll get a 14-day trial, and if you set up a dashboard, you get a free t-shirt. I love free stuff. They have machine-based learning alerts, customizable dashboards, of course. They'll have 400, more than 400 vendor-backed integrations. They make it easy to bring in all these different apps, all these different sources of information. They make it really easy. You can combine these metrics and traces and logs all in one place. Makes it really easy and straightforward to improve application performance and reliability. And they give you observability into containers as well. So you can get a real idea of what your Docker containers or other container systems are doing. Try them for free. Go to datadog.com slash radio. See how you can unify your monitoring today and set up a dashboard, try out the agent, get a free t-shirt. It's datadog.com slash radio. You go there, support the show, and you get the 14-day free trial. Also, thanks to Linode. Linode.com slash coder. Go there for a $100 60-day free trial. Now, you can start with Linode for $5 a month. Linode is server infrastructure that's really quick and easy to set up. And if you are a little more advanced or you need something just outside the regular box, they're going to accommodate you. Unlike 
lower class entry level services out there that I have tried to save a buck every now and then. I mean, I, I am a small business, but it's just every time I came back to Linode and, and now I've been using them for over just over two years. And just recently, I needed to just completely re-image a Linode to a kind of custom vendor Linux. You've probably seen these out there before. And they have an actual guide on how to do it. They're totally okay with that kind of stuff. So it's a great platform to learn, but they have a ton of just one-click deployments as well. And they have other services outside of virtual servers. They have S3-compatible object storage. They have load balancers. So if you're looking to game, if you're looking to learn, or if you're looking to build a personal site or the back end for your company infrastructure, Linode can help you. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing. That's three years before AWS. They know how this works, and they've made it better and better over time. Now, they have crazy fast network connections, super fast disks, 11 data centers around the world, and they're independently owned. So go there, linode.com slash coder. Get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account and go there to support the show. linode.com slash coder. And a big thank you to Linode for sponsoring the show. And thank you to everybody who goes out there and tries it out. I've been hearing from a lot of you who have supported the network and supported Linode by going to linode.com slash coder. And now I kind of want to know what you're doing with it. You've been telling me you're doing it, but let me know. Tweet me at Chris LAS, or you can let me know in the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group. What are you doing with your Linode? Linode.com slash Coder. And a big thanks to Linode for sponsoring Coder Radio Program. Well, Mr. Dominic, where should we even start? Where do we even start? Maybe with uh, just how tight these productions have gotten. I mean, this thing was like 45, 50 minutes tops. I mean, it was really quick. It was uh, quick and brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I I was predicting that it would be a bloodbath, but they were though. I mean, the entire time they were make they were making claims six times faster than the leading the leading comparable PC, five times faster than this, eleven times faster than that. I actually wrote these down. They're, these are the claims they were making uh, the entire time. They never once gave us CPU clock speed ever. They would say things like eight cores, which is impressive. But they never said what speed those cores are running at. And they never really said much beyond the memory system other than it's a unified architecture as well, which that's a huge change for the Mac. That is not how it is traditionally done on the x86 platform. And I got to imagine it means no third-party GPUs, and it's going to eliminate certain types of PCI cards too, I think. So, so I think maybe it's good to, like, what did they gain, right? Tons of speed, tons of performance, and they could go fanless in the air, which, you know... As they will tell you all the time, the errors are best-selling unit, so I'm sure that's a big win. But I think they lost boot camp, right? Yes, although they claim to have improved virtualization greatly. In fact, emulation, they say, in some cases, is faster than it would have been on x86 with certain types of GPUs and whatnot. That's a remarkable claim. They're, they, they essentially waited until these CPUs were in a state where they could actually shame Intel. They were essentially shaming Intel with the PC guy coming on at the end. They're claiming that Photoshop and some Photoshop filters work better and faster on ARM Macs using emulation than using the native x86 version. And they're claiming virtualization with, is just off the charts too, although we didn't see much in the way of that in the presentation. First of all, do we believe the claims? 
I think so because I do too because yeah. they got to they got to define the the terms and and the ground rules a little bit. So in in the in the ground rules they laid out, I think they can be very competitive there. Yeah, in particular, they kept talking about machine learning, but it's pretty obvious that they mean their machine learning solution, Core ML, right? Not right. the more common solution, TensorFlow, or any of the other alternatives out there. Yeah, that's one of the things that's becoming more of an issue with Apple is you kind of have to parse their language. Machine learning absolutely is not machine learning as we know it. It's Core ML. And perhaps there's easy ways to translate between them. I don't know. Maybe somebody will create one now. Going back to the unified memory architecture, I also wonder what this means for eGPUs. Is just somebody who employs that pretty heavily for my video editing. I think you're in trouble, right? I think the eGPUs are, how would that work? I don't know. They said, quote, jaw-dropping performance a couple of times. Um, I mean, these claims are pretty big. But you know what I was surprised by the most was the Mac Mini. Yes. Didn't nobody, nobody really talked about that. But it was so obvious in retrospect because they already had the dev machines. So just refine that. Right. Just make it prettier and give it more memory and a better uh, CPU. And it's got a sting, right, to be Intel right now. Yeah. Because really, like, there's some imp- impressive stuff in these ARM chips. But this is also, this is not just a story of Apple kind of triumphing here. This is a story of Intel just losing. And for reasons that make a ton of sense, right? Like, you know, the the nanometer, the die set shrink, the nanometer shrink is a bet they made on how they could do it. And they never quite got it right. Yeah. These are five nanometer chips. Right. And Apple happened to get it right because they were used to, you know, they brought their technology up from a phone where Intel was trying to always go down from, you know, giant Xeons, right? Mm-hmm. True. What does this mean for like, you know, the savage dunk on basically the Dell XPS 13, right? Like they also had a uh, they had an HP workstation up on screen that they were kind of name and shaming a little bit, too. And it was a like, a you know, more professional grade workstation. But let's not forget, it's also going to trounce all their other laptops, too, and probably most consumer grade iMacs. Yeah. Yeah. They also announced the new MacBook Air and MacBook Pro 13. A couple of things that is... I think going to be a big deal for people that are buying these is it looks like across the line, everything got better video cameras. They're starting to use maybe the front facing iPhone camera. And uh, they have, at least in the MacBook Pro 13, they have the new studio grade mics, as they call them. But they're, you know, great mics for a video conference, bad mics for recording a podcast. And they're building that in now. That's that's compelling to see. The Mac Mini started at six ninety nine. The others kind of are at the same price. So that the Mac Mini got a hundred dollar price reduction there. Also interesting to note, Apple is still selling the three gigahertz uh, Core i five six core Intel version of the Mac Mini. The only Intel version. They only have one Intel version Mac Mini available for sale now, and it's a it's basically twelve hundred dollars. The um, Mac Mini. Base six ninety nine, but then upgraded to five hundred and twelve gigabytes of storage. It is eight ninety nine. Of course, you'd want to then also pop that thing up to the max sixteen gigs of RAM. So if you go with sixteen gigs of what they call unified RAM, and then you can go up to two terabytes of storage. So say you put two terabytes of storage in this thing, you end up with a seventeen hundred dollar Mac Mini. That's what the real price is if you wanted to actually use this as a workstation. You might be able to get away with a terabyte. So if you if you were okay with living with a terabyte, that knocks four hundred dollars off, and now it's a thirteen hundred dollar workstation. That's uh, that's compelling. Yeah, if the performance claims are what they claimed, then this thing is probably faster than the iMac Pro. It's it's probably up there, right? It's it's maybe competitive with the Mac Pro if their claims are true. That's amazing. Eight cores too. 
I just, you know, the claims are bold, right? I keep hesitating on some of these claims because is it going to be, it's great if your application is written, you know, natively for iOS or Mac OS. What about like giant Java apps, like all the JetBrain suite, right? Yeah. Yeah. They showed some complex applications running under Rosetta too. No, it's true. Right. So it's possible. The other thing that I noticed that they're doing now is they're using active cooling as a feature. So what they have up on, they'll have like, you know, when they have all of the features that are available, one of them now is active cooling. So when they have a Mac, they've had to put a fan in, (laughs) they list it as a feature, (laughs) which is pretty clever. But uh, I think it's their way of saying we've clocked the CPU up without actually having to talk about the CPU speeds. Because they specifically called that out in the mini too, that because it has active cooling, we're running the chip faster. But they didn't say how much faster. So what do you think this means for everybody else? It's all going to be in the performance. If the performance is as good or perhaps maybe even better in edge cases than they claimed on stage, then the industry has to respond. If it is better only in the scenarios in which they have defined and otherwise it is it is worse, like here's a, a scenario I could see easily being a problem, is perhaps emulating Intel software means you have to run the GPU and CPU at a pretty high clip. And so these claims of battery life that they're promising completely fall through because they depend on using the lower power CPU cores, which maybe you can't do with emulation. Right. And so if you're running an x86 app load, you basically get the battery life that you would have gotten on a regular Intel MacBook with maybe some performance improvements in some areas and probably some losses in other areas. And I expect that to be the actual um, experience until you open up something like Safari or Photos or some other Apple application and the thing just screams in those circumstances. That's my concern. If you're not completely committed to the Apple tool chain, that you may lose many of the advantages of this uh, this new engineering. They did kind of more than once in different ways, but one, one time directly call out performance gains for Xcode. Well, you know, you pick the low-hanging fruits. Yeah. <laughs> that was mean. No, I mean, it's true. If, it, if There's a lot of room to improve. Right. It's, what I want to see is like, can, you know, young designer just starting out pick up a 13-inch MacBook Pro and realistically work in Photoshop and Illustrator for a couple of years? Yeah. What I want to know is how how will industry applications and plugin developers respond? So like here at JB... Every now and then we throw something over on the Mac load and there's this company called Isotope who makes just these world-renowned audio fixing tools. You know, like maybe we have a guest that just has this horrendously bad audio and to air it, we have to run it through these really specialized tools that radio stations use and whatnot. So these tools are exact. In fact, I was just looking at one today. It's a tool that can clean up audio that has cracks and and uh, pops in it. So it can actually go through and try to remove some of the pops and clips, but it also will help reduce the, like if you have a host who is breathing too much <sighs> into the microphone like that, it, it can go through and clean that up. And I was just looking at the price of it. And it's, it's, a, it's an $1,100, $1,200 uh, software pack. And it very much depends on acceleration. And I just don't know what something like that is going gonna, is gonna to run like on an ARM Mac. And I don't know what to expect for these plugin developers for Final Cut and Logic and the Adobe Suite. I don't know what to expect from them because 
in some cases, they're dependent on Adobe. In other cases, it's, you know, it's a real balance for them because they have Windows users and that's going to require some big code changes. And there's, it's a complicated story for them. And that's going to define how useful this transition is. If it's one of these things where you could say buy a Mac mini, set yourself up an eight core ARM workstation that is killer fast. And over the next six months, everything just starts kind of trickling through the app store and you've got these updates that make these applications work great on ARM and give you all these benefits. And it's, you know, happening pretty quick. I think I think it could be pretty smooth, you know, and I could see certain types of users who don't need a lot. Maybe they need a machine for school. They want to play some video games. Now, now this Mac mini could do something it couldn't do before and play. It can play some video games. The problem I'm going to see here is they said at the beginning of this thing, right off the bat, it's a two-year transition. Yes. It's a two-year transition. Here's a couple of machines. So the Mac Pro, the iMac Pro, the stuff that drives the professional industry that's going to force professional industry software developers to update their applications is going to lag the most. And that's going to make it, I think, a trickier transition for those using it in industrial-grade applications like, like video editing shops and audio editing shops. But... For end users that don't use those tools, or perhaps even for developers that are today primarily just target iOS, that was one of the emails we got in is Patrick writes in, he says, hey guys, I love the show, but I think you missed the mark a little bit with your Apple developer critique. What you said applies really only if you're a developer targeting cloud and Linux servers, which I think is a huge market. He goes on to say, but if you're making mobile apps or doing web development, macOS is still the best platform to be on. I'm in the mobile and web development world, and there's no way I could switch to Ubuntu or Windows. It's not just because of iOS apps can only be built on macOS. I think it's also with the ARM transition. They're going to cement macOS as the premier mobile web development platform with a workable server dev platform. That's my two cents, Patrick. He says, by the way, I'm a dev in Germany who uses, uh, who doesn't use SUSE at all. I know it's weird, but there are a couple of us out here. <laughs> we have your IP address. Don't worry. I love that. I love that. So Patrick says, you know, this mobile and web, people who are making mobile applications for iOS and web apps, possibly, but maybe not even that, it's still a ginormous market and there's still nothing that serves them. And I know you fought this battle yourself. Yeah, I mean, so there's no two ways about it, right? The case against Macs as um, dev stations for folks doing like web development and not like the nitty gritty, like we're setting up a SUSE data center thing to either switch them to Windows or Linux just became a hell of a lot harder, right? If you're just doing straight Rails development or straight Python development or, uh, you know, PHP, whatever, I guess PHP, if you hate yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a large part of the switcher case just got shot in the face. I don't even know how else to put it. I don't really have much more, but I do have one last question for you. Do you think realistically something was presented to you today that you are interested in purchasing to add to your tool set here because I know you're hoping for potentially more battery life. They did claim on the 13 inch and certain workloads, you could get up to 20 hours of battery life, but that's like watching a video. Did they present something that you think is worth busting out uh, the wallet for? So I want to hear what you think I'm going to say. I mean, I think it, I think it depends on, it's always going to depend on what your current workload is. And if you have to target iOS or Mac at all, is that the case at the moment? Um, I wouldn't say at all. Well, there, there's like maintenance stuff, but not nothing new at the moment. Sure, sure. I'm going to say no then. That is the correct answer. No. Really? So I'll tell you why. Now, if now, and I'll tell you what I would get if I was going to get something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The if I did it. One, the majority of the engineering work we're doing is 
very is going to be in Q1 very TensorFlow focused. <laughs> yep. And that that's why I kept harping on it. Well, when they say ML, <laughs> right, yep. what do they mean? Yep. Um also like, you know, there's the practical, hey, we're setting up a data center. You know, that's expensive, right? Don't want to spend money if I don't have to. And mm-hmm. honestly, it's not enough of a improvement. Like my right now my core problem is not that like my desk workstations or my employees workstations are not fast enough it's how do we architect these solutions in the ways that are you know sustainable that we can predict the development pace things like that having said that do i potentially see a gen 2 in my future or if like i don't know my laptop got smashed do i maybe see one in my future possibly right but right now i probably would not get one or i'm not going to get one and i don't i didn't see enough to compel me to get one right i don't need the 18 hour battery life because there's no traveling right now and i don't need i don't have a mac app that i'm supporting that i would be afraid that like i have to get an arm mac so if somebody got this in their hands and they wrote up a post that said you know xcode is just next level these tools are so much faster my build times are so much faster the data because they also mentioned that the ssds are significantly faster twice the performance they claimed. And that's remarkable because I already think the MacBooks were first in class in SSD performance with the T2 chip. But they're claiming even faster disk performance now. They're claiming even faster CPU performance. What if the reviews come back and they're like, this is the fastest computer I've ever I've ever owned and it's a tiny MacBook Air? That's super compelling, right? So you could see how you'd add it to your list in the future as possible considerations. We have some customers that like have some legacy Mac stuff we support for them. And I, I guess I could see a world if they like switched overnight and all of a sudden our stuff wouldn't run. But these are line of business applications. So the Rosetta is just going to work. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. There, you may not even be compelled to have to update them. Who knows? Right. Although I'm sure eventually they'll phase out Rosetta, but it'll be years. Uh, years. Right. I mean, these are old Objective-C apps. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. I like yourself. I'm not necessarily compelled to buy one. The, what, what surprised me was the Mac Mini because I could see a world where I, I have two workstations upstairs and I could see a world where I I take my, my Linux laptop out and I just put in a permanent Mac Mini and that's where I do all of my video projects. But truth be told is I've, I don't really have any current video projects and I think it's best for me to wait and see how the applications on that side pan out for a bit. Yeah. It's nice to see Apple have a machine that is six ninety nine or let's say seven hundred dollars, which is just well below a grand. You know, it's for them, it's it's a compelling price point. I mean, I'd love to see it at four ninety nine, of course, but <laughs> that's never going to happen. Um, and so that I I think I tip the hat to them on that. I think they I think they nailed it with the Mac Mini. They've created a machine that is is at a very competitive price point for Apple and where they compete and. Um, if I was going to get one, would probably be the one for me right now. That's That looks like a pretty nice machine to get in, just take advantage of the setup I already have. You know, I've got a keyboard and a mouse for my RSI. I've, I've got some 2K displays that I'm very happy with, and uh, I could just rock up and roll. I'd, I'd be curious to see if it works with Thunderbolt docks and all of that. Yeah. But just for me, not in a place right now where I need it, Macs fall in very, very squarely into the tool category for me. I buy them occasionally, and I buy them as production tools because there are two options for some of these applications, like I was talking about earlier, Windows or macOS, and I just am not particularly fond of Windows, and I'm just not, I don't enjoy using it at all, so I'm going to get a Mac. 
but I'm just not in that spot yet. My apps have to get switched over. Yeah, I think the the Mac Mini is the runaway here. It does create a concern um, as someone who actually thinks the iMac Pro is a very good, like, high-end developer workstation. No monitor. No monitor, and I don't... So, like, you have the Mac Pro, which I know a lot of people were saying, oh, well, there's going to be a, you know, to quote Syracuse, a stripper model, right? Not strippers as in dancers, but strippers as in, you know, like a down, down market. All they have to do is take the IMAX screen and put it in a stand, you know, so you don't have to go buy like these, like the the, the LG one, which is not a, a super bad looking monitor, but remember how it was not properly shielded and it was creating Wi-Fi? Yeah, I had I had one of those. They had to replace it, like screws up your Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I, I, but I think the Mac, I think what's going to happen is, and especially how they were showing the Mac Mini being used, is that they think that they probably aren't going to, so this is my bacon. I'm pretty sure there's not going to be another iMac Pro. Right. And the, the like developer, you know, you're a pro, but you're not Pixar high end machine. It's just going to be a souped up version of the Mac mini next year. Or they, I mean, if, if they, if they're getting this kind of performance gains in the MacBook air, if they, if when the M2 comes along and they put that in the iMac, cause you can see how this is going to go, right? M2 will be the next wave and every, everything that's on the M1 gets the upgrade. And then when they do the M3, it'll be the next wave of Macs. So the M2 is probably going to be the iMac and it's probably going to just outstrip the iMac Pro in every regard and be quieter. And you could totally see them just saying, we're kind of done with the iMac Pro. This is so much faster. And you have, you know, XYZ improvements. Just use this. And the iMac Pro dies as a weird one-off, right? Because they've never even revved it, have they? They've revved uh, the GPUs. G- yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think the iMac Pro is going to die. Because remember, the iMac Pro was meant to be the Mac Pro. Yeah. And then they had the scramble. And then they realized, oh... Oh, people out there use Macs. Oh. Right. So I think the iMac Pro is just like, unfortunately, a victim of really a product that, I, I'm sorry, baby, I love you, but a product that doesn't make sense anymore, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not forward looking. If you really need top performance and like, and you are Pixar, you probably want upgradability and you're probably, your budget is probably just dramatically higher, right? I mean, you can spec a Mac Pro to be a Ferrari, then you're on the Mac Pro and you don't care. This is just a thing you buy, right? You're used to spending 20 grand on monitors. Yeah. If you're a developer, I mean, realistically, when the 16-inch or 15-inch MacBook Pro comes out, if Apple ever gets off their butt and makes a, an Apple Cinema display again, that probably, that or the Mac Mini become the ideal, like, higher-end, your, you know, your mic or your Marco, and you, you just, like, would rather have a better machine. That probably is it. Yeah. I mean, they can do whatever they want, but I, I don't I don't see a reason to keep the iMac Pro going no. when I'm pretty sure there's going to be some very depressing benchmarks on my model iMac Pro. Yes. Versus like, you know, the 13 inch MacBook Pro. I think the people who are probably going to really be sore the most, though, are people who bought the MacBook Pro 16. Not that they didn't know it was coming, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> that's a higher end on the MacBook Pro line and these... You know, the 13s could, if what they claim is true in the keynote, could trounce it. We'll see. I would be surprised if they didn't. I mean, I think we're going to see benchmarks where the Mac minis actually trounce the iMac Pro, at least the base models. Usually when Apple fronts and flexes this much, they they tend to deliver because they they're they don't want to be embarrassed and called out, you know? Yeah, I mean, they st- they're still going to have the problem of like this super, I mean, I think, I hope I hope I'm wrong, actually, but. I think they still super optimize for their own stuff a little too much. (laughs) Yeah. Very last thing as we begin to wrap up, I think it's worth sort of zooming out and appreciating how 
careful and planned out this transition has been. I think it probably started when they started limiting MacBooks to USB-C is when they probably started this transition. Yeah. And if you look at all of the things they've carefully been putting in place in terms of UIKit replacement, but also just in terms of the um, way they have been developing Macs for a while and the features they've been bringing into Mac OS and the way they've been sort of positioning everyone to get ready for this for years now has resulted in them being able to announce these things today and ship them next week and shame Intel in the performance department when they do it. Not just be competitive or maybe slightly slower, but we're going to get there, guys. This is a transition. Nope. Shame them and ship them. That shame and ship, the orders are up right now. They nailed this thing. They nailed this so hard that I think somebody should write up a, a history lesson on this because this is they are the king of platform transitions. And when you look back at it, you can see so many little pieces have been have been put into place to make this possible. And you got to tip the hat at them for that. So yeah, that's worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. I want to say thank you to our Coder QA team. Thank you for supporting the show. You get a limited ad feed as an option, and you get the Coderly Report every quarter when it comes out. Just go to Coder QA. Also, I want to mention our sponsor, Cloud Guru, has running Linux servers on Azure. If this is something you've been interested in, take a look at this. We'll have a link in the show notes. This course is going to provide you with an understanding of Linux on Azure and a practical hands-on experience for performing key configuration and management tasks. You just start with the basics, and by the end of the course, you'll be comfortable planning, deploying, and maintaining Linux virtual machines on Azure. You can get started with the link in our show notes. Just go to coder.show slash three. Eight, seven. Mr. Dominic, is there anything else you want to mention before we get out of here? Uh, no, uh, try try to resist the urge to buy an ARM Mac, I guess. <laughs> and if you do get one, write in and tell us your impressions, right? You that's could right, that's right. Live through you vicariously. Coder.show slash contact. Also, a big shout out to everyone in the chat room and watching us on the live stream. We've been going for over two hours. We got kicked off of YouTube early on and we're still rocking it. So thank you, everybody. You can join us live at jblive.tv. We have times and days at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, and we'd love to have you join us there. The website, like I mentioned earlier, coder.show. The network for all the shows at Jupiter Broadcasting is jupiterbroadcasting.com. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coder Radio Program. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>